This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Blackfeet in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearspaw, Morley, and Chiniki. We acknowledge the Satina, who are Dene, and the Métis, Inuit, status and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treaty people. Welcome to the Dave Leary Show! Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast, brought to you by Freedom's Path Recovery Society in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thank you for tuning in. Please remember that these opinions that are shared are those of the individuals and not of any agency, organization, or other entity, unless otherwise specified. Also, if you're a minor, please check with your parent and or guardian as you need to have permission to listen to these podcasts. We will potentially talk about violent subject matter, sexual content, and difficulties human beings face on their day-to-day lives in recovery. Thank you so much for doing that. No problem. It's a... I'm grateful I get the privilege to do this. <laughs> oh, man, I just, I, I'm so, I, I was trying to pay attention to what was happening because you were speaking at a, um, at a rally, right? Um, I spoke at two of them. I spoke oh, okay. at one in Black Falls. Yeah. It was two weeks ago and then one on Canada Day. Okay, cool. Um, well, tell us about, uh, I'm really interested in your story, your overall story, of course, but what's really like kind of, motivated me to finally ask you to be on the podcast is obviously the anti-racism stuff that's going on, which I think is amazing. Like I want to see more of it, right? Like um, obviously we have some problems that we need to like get through. Um, do you want to, do you want to just take it away, Matt? I would love to just hear from you. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out where to start with yeah. this. Thing. I mean, um, it's something that I've been part of my whole life. Uh, my grandpa in 95 was part of Gustafson Lake standoff. And, and my mom, she really didn't want us part of that. And well, what was that? To think that, that? Uh, Gustafson Lake standoff was about our rights to have a Sundance. Mm-hmm. That, that's what was it. And, and the National Guard and at least 100 RCMP showed up to prevent us from having a Sundance because we had weapons there and, and we were gathering and, and, and in 1995, like this was still against the law for us to do. Mm-hmm. So I've gotten to see a lot of that with my, my family. Um, it is kind of messed up that the Canadian government still considers my grandpa a terrorist. Oh, gee. so did your and, grandpa pass away with that label? No, he's still alive, but he's okay. still a terrorist. Like he okay. can't leave the country. He can't, you know, he's he's restic- restricted from doing a lot of things, and 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 it's a lot of the stuff that we deal with that a lot of people don't know about. Um, I, I started to share some of my my mom and my grandma and my aunt's stories from the residential school. Um, and it's been pretty intense because there are a lot of people that don't know about what happened in the residential schools. Yeah. Um, 
it, it's that's really not hard. Easy subject. Pardon? That's not an easy subject to like talk to people about, right? No, and it then it's it's hard because I've brought up some of my traumas in, in recovery and I kind of got shot down. Because hmm. I was like, yo man, this is what's been bothering me and, and like I just needed to talk about it with someone. And and I mentioned some stuff in a meeting. And I, I got approached afterwards and told that I shouldn't be talking about that stuff. And I was like, well, it kind of was a part of my recovery. And, and I'm talking about how it relates to like the steps that I'm working and all this other stuff. Yeah. And I've had a lot of people just try and sweep me under the rug. And, oh, and it wow. sucks. Um, because like, I talk about some really horrendous stuff that happened to my family. Um, I'll tell you guys a little bit. My my aunt and my grandma, they told me about this White House that was in the center because they they were uh, they went to Joseph's. I, I don't know if it's St. Joe's or Joseph's boarding school in Williams Lake, BC, and it was closed in 1980. And my mom and my aunts and my uncles were one of the last residents there, and 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 the. They told me about this White House and, and I can't stop thinking about it. It kind of keeps me up at night because it's like, man, I can't believe something like that would happen. So the priests, when they would rape the indigenous girls, when they'd hit puberty and they'd get pregnant, they would force them to burn their babies in the furnace of that oh, house. No. And, and this is stuff that my aunt told me that she witnessed and my grandma told me that she'd witnessed my aunt told me about how she would wet the bed because she knew if she did that, she, the priests and, and, and the teachers wouldn't rape her. And that she was six years old when this was happening. Oh, Jesus, man. And it's a lot of trauma that I'm dealing with as a second generation because my reserve is, is pretty broken and, and not of a lot of us like to talk about it. Mm -hmm. It, 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 it in my community, we just kind of sweep it under the rug and, and we just laugh it off. But, oh. and it's hard because since I've left my community and people know that, like other indigenous people know that, I'm kind of outcasted. Like, hmm. like when you leave the reserve yeah. and you like go into the city and you, you become urbanized, you, you get outcasted so you're dealing with all this trauma by yourself and it's why you see a lot of indigenous people out there just intoxicated or on drugs and it's because a lot of them don't know how to deal with that trauma mm. it took me forever to deal with the trauma yeah. and i went to five treatment centers and at every treatment center when i tried to talk about it i was told that i couldn't talk about it because it wasn't really? a base treatment center. And they're, they're all in Calgary. <laughs> and that's, yeah. you know, they told me that I could go get outside help, but I was ready to talk about all that stuff in the moment and mm -hmm. to get shut down. Like, it really messed with my recovery. Oh, no doubt. Um, but it, now that I've worked through a lot of that stuff, I understand why. I understand why people are uncomfortable with it. Like, I'm not comfortable with it. There's yeah. a lot of stuff that I, 
that I've experienced that if I told some people, like I've told people and, and they just can't look at me the same. Mm-hmm. I, I told people about my experiences being homeless in, in, in Calgary and almost being sexually assaulted. Um, I was living at the DI. Mm. I just left the DI. We, we, when you live at the drop-in center, um, they kick you out early in the morning after you eat. And it's either you can mm. stick around and hang out there or you can go out and panhandle or do whatever. And um, I uh, I had some rich rich guy drive up, wave some money in my, my face and kind of said, hey, if you come do this, you know, you, you don't even have to do anything sexual. This is all you got to do. And I did it once and I felt really dirty. <laughs> I got a room in the, in the Shamrock <laughs> this yeah. was a few years ago. And uh, the second time I tried it because the guy gave me his number and told me if I wanted to make more money to call him. And I did. And he brought me a coffee that day. Hmm. And I felt weird. Like when he brought the coffee, he was just like, here, 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 you know, drink, 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 drink. And, and I yeah. could just feel that, you know, and I could feel the tension of him like getting irritated that I wasn't drinking his coffee. And one thing turned into another, him and I got in a really big struggle. I ended up hitting him a couple times and, and falling out of the car and rolling out of the car to get away. And Thank God you got away, man. Well, this kind of stuff happens to our homeless in Calgary, in Edmonton. Yeah. And, and that's the stuff that I'm getting out at is like, mm. we need to start worrying about our people and the trauma. And and, and that, that, that's that's it. Mm. That's, that's how I got recovered. I, You know, when I when I went to the last treatment center that I went to, someone told me, you know, because I was talking about the sexual abuse that I, I went through as a kid. Mm-hmm. And they said that you're not dealing with the underlying issue. You're just lashing out at everyone. And, you know, I went to therapy and, and I found out it was like, I, I was told that it's just this little boy inside of me that's so damaged that all I do is lash out and try and hurt. And that's that's what I noticed with a lot of my people, a lot of the indigenous people, because like yeah, some of us haven't gone through the residential schools. Like you, mm. you see a lot of it here in Alberta. Um, a lot of people, or a lot of indigenous people my age, they haven't experienced the schools, but maybe they're second, third generation, so yeah. they just grew up in really broken homes seeing a lot of alcoholism. Um, well, and that intergenerational trauma, right? Yeah. Like, it's, and it is pretty apparent, like when you walk, walk into, walk onto any reserve and you can see how run down it is and how much people take care of themselves. And it's because like, nobody taught me how to live. Nobody taught my mom how to live. Nobody taught us how to live normally in today's society. So people expect us to be normal people and and they think we get all this free stuff. And I wish I knew how to live. I wish I got all that free stuff, but 
the one thing I wish I had the most is my language. Mm. That's, that's which language? Um, Shuswap. Okay. Uh, my mom, my mom and I were talking about this because she was a little ashamed of how she was with us when we were kids because she would yell at us in our language and she would tell us not to talk it. And she told us that we weren't allowed to be res Indians. Yeah. And she always had to keep, we always had to look like we had it together, even though my mom was an alcoholic and, and we dealt with a lot. We always had to keep that appearance because we're proud people. It, but the, when it comes down to language and what me and my mom were talking about, it was like, what the schools took from us and that's our identity. Like I I can count to like seven in my language. I can say grandpa, ba'a, grandma, cha. But I don't have it. And and people like all these people tell me like, oh don't you get all this free stuff and free healthcare and yada yada yada. And it's like, no man. I don't, and if you really think that me getting like my basic healthcare covered for the loss of my language and the loss of my identity is worth it, then you can have it back. If you can give me back my language, you can have all that stuff. I don't care. Yeah. I'll, I'll take out student loans, I'll do everything that normal people do. Just give me back my language. <laughs> give That's me a back. very basic thing, right? Yeah, like, it, it yeah. sucks. It's hard. It's hard watching Caucasian people, Spanish people, Asians, any other race. You can watch them and they can go learn their language for the most part. Yeah. I can't. They, they have an app that I can download, but there are maybe 150 elders left that speak our language fluently. And there's only 6,550 shoe swap people left. Oh, wow. So, yeah, just, if I could have that back, mm. you could have the free healthcare, you could have the tax card, you could have all that stuff. Mm. I, don't, I don't get anything for free. I had to pay for my own GED. Mm -hmm. I, I had to use my curb check to pay for my upgrading classes. I think, you know, I think V, that's what people forget who don't know is that they forget that the rights that, that you're talking about and that we've been talking about for a, a while now are clean water, man, like clean yeah. water on the reserves. Like we're not talking about free trucks. Like that's a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. Right? And, and yeah. And, and like that, we still don't have clean drinking water on my Exactly. Reserve. And it's 2020. Yeah. I know. We, we still have to, on my reserve, the water is so, it's brown. Like, is it like really, hey? It's literally brown. And like there's dirt that comes out of it. Like you can see it on the, on the tubs. And, and and a lot of people tell me, like, well, why don't you guys fix it? Why doesn't your government fix it? And I'm like, well, you know, a lot of us didn't know what was going on. A lot of us were, weren't aware that the 
uh, some of our chiefs were getting money to fix this and they pocketed it or they blew it all. So people are getting mad at the people when we, we weren't aware because mm-hmm. we get kept in the dark. A lot of yeah. the natives that move to the reserve, they get, they get kind of just pushed aside. And it's like, right. hey, yeah, and I could see that, B, because like as a white man, 45 years old, it's not like I'm being told. I'm not being told that you guys don't have drinking water. You know why? Because if they tell us, we're not going to sit back and just let this shit go, right? Like, and so I'm grateful for you for being so vocal, even though I know like obviously this stuff is triggering them because it's heavy shit, right? It's triggering, but... As much as I want to go drink and use, I, yeah, I got recovered, and, and mm-hmm. I can't believe that. <laughs> I can't. I, that's it's, awesome, dude. How's that for you? I wouldn't be doing this if I wasn't recovered. Yeah, <laughs> like that. That's. Mm. I've never lived on my own. I've never had. I've never had a laptop that I bought out of the store. It was usually stolen or something that someone gave to me like secondhand. And I never really used it unless it was for like Facebook or music. And, and now I'm going to school and, and I have a home and I have a life. Dude, I have a PlayStation. <laughs> wow. Never, good. Like, the last time I owned a PlayStation and I bought yeah. a brand new PlayStation was like 2010. Wow. And, you, and even before that, I, didn't, I have a life. And as much as the stuff can be triggering and I do, I slip into mania because I have a lot of mental health issues. Uh, I deal with PTSD. Mm -hmm. Um, They think that I've got borderline personality disorder because of all the trauma that I've been through Mm -hmm. and I've gone through a lot of stuff. And that's the other thing that people don't, really grasp onto they're like oh you got all this free health care but it's like yeah but i have to wait six months to see the specialist that you know specializes in in the therapy that i need mm-hmm. and not only that because of because of the politics right now and it's like like these psychology offices being privatized i need to have a credit card mm-hmm. in case i miss an appointment and if i miss that appointment and they won't see me for six months and then I have to restart the process all over again. And, and a lot of these people that are trying to get this mental health help live on reserves and they don't have ways out here. And a lot of, a lot of these therapists will go out there and, and it's not really helping anyone. There are so many flaws in the indigenous healthcare system it's ridiculous they like i was talking to a friend the other day who was escaping um she was escaping domestic domestic violence and she's at a safe house in probably one of the grossest neighborhoods in calgary where there are like meth dealers and fentanyl dealers just hanging out outside of this like women's shelter women and they don't even give them a chance like like if you think about it like us as addicts 
indigenous, whatever it is, if you, you know, if you're trying to escape that kind of lifestyle and, and you're put down on like 118 and 95th street, I don't know if you know Cal or Edmonton that well, but that's, it's a pretty neighborhood. Um, it's, it's sad because I watched a couple of those women that were my friends that ended up in that safe house get hooked on it. And within a month or two, they were working the streets and they're just trying to escape domestic violence. And they're put in this safe house down in one of the dirtiest neighborhoods in Edmonton. And it's like that across Canada. There, there are recovery houses in, in Calgary. They're supposed to be indigenous, but they're right behind Marlboro Mall beside a, a, a trap house. Mm. And, and I lived in one of those, and, and I'd literally watch once a week a body bag come out of that house. I'd watch someone like kick the door in next door. We had homeless people constantly in our yard, in our backyard, peeking in our windows. And, and we were in a recovery house. We were coming out and finding needles on the ground, meth pipes, guys just passed out in our alley. And, and people wonder why my people are mad. People wonder why we're upset and hurt because we get the crap end of the stick in the residential and then thrown into these unsafe communities where we're supposed to find change. I mean, how am I going to get changed if I'm, I'm living next to a trap house or if I'm trying to escape domestic violence and you're putting me in a home where there are meth dealers and fentanyl dealers sitting outside my front door waiting for me to come out and score and then once they figure out you know i'm hooked they're gonna front 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 boom that woman owes that drug dealer a bunch of money and then she has to work the streets because then she gets threatened and she can't go talk to the social workers because she relapsed like what kind of system is that why aren't yeah. they taking these women out of these places why aren't they taking the like addicts in recovery out of there and putting them somewhere safe, giving them a chance. Why, why are we talking about clean water in 2020? Yeah. In Canada. Mm -hmm. That's a good question, man. And the reason like, is, like, is like because- the rest of Canada, What's that? Well, I was gonna say the rest of the, of, of the country, uh, they're complaining about fluoride being in the water. Mm -hmm. Fluoride. They're complaining about that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and people are like, We'd love to have that problem. We'd love to have that problem. Clean drinking water with fluoride, water that won't turn my skin scaly dry after I use it. I'd love to have that problem on my reserve. I don't know yeah, especially because the water's dirty, right? Yeah, it's dirty. It's, it's a cesspool. Like it's just water that sits there underground in old rusty metal containers. And, and it's, that's what we have to live with mm -hmm. in Canada. Yeah. It's, it's crazy, man. Like Canadian system of uh, governance for 
the indigenous people here has been apartheid. Like it's compared to apartheid across the planet. Same with the States, right? Like we've been compared to South Africa in terms of how we treat the indigenous people of, of Turtle Island, right? Like period. We've, some people have flat out accused us. Obviously we whitewash it, right? For, yeah. for consumption so that nobody really knows that's what people think of us, right? But that's what well, they think of our government. And then you're like, to touch on the American side, like, it's worse down there. Yeah. It, it's yeah. way worse because they get to govern themselves and they get maybe 12 police officers, indigenous police officers to work on the res. So you have that many cops against, you have, they have cartels running reservations in, in Southern America, in Southern American states. They are funneling drugs through those reservations because the federal government cannot go on those on that land mm-hmm. down there, period. If we had the same rules up here, I mean, I think we'd kind of be better off, but if you are a police officer, FBI agent, ATF, you're not allowed to cross that line without permission. If you come across and try to arrest someone, you can be arrested. So they have no chance. You've got all these cartels and all these drug dealers and whatnot funneling drugs into these reservations. and, And a lot of them, are left to their own devices and they're told to take care of themselves and, and they don't have money. They don't have anything coming in. So yeah, of course we all turn to drugs. We all turn to selling drugs and crime. Mm-hmm. What other choice do we have? Yeah. I, I, I well, can't, <clears throat> I can't get hired in, in this province because of what I am. And, and when I do get hired, I have to work harder to keep that job. And, and it's cool because, I mean, it's not cool. It, it, it sucks because, like, I get told all the time, V, you're the hardest working Indian I've ever seen. Mm. And I'm like, man, how many Indians have you had working for you? Or, or have you just, like, basing this off of me and, like, maybe one or two other people that you've had work for you? And it, it gets to me. Yeah, I bet it does, man. But how is how do you find it? Um, now that you're in recovery, you've been in recovery for a while. Um, is it? Are you finding different ways to cope with that anger um, and the difficulties? Like you mentioned, some mental health stuff. Like this, the the racial stuff must just absolutely blow up the mental health aspect, right? Like your mental health because this is so personal, like deeply personal to you, you know, like not just you personally, but your family personally, like this is so deeply a part of you, the voice that you're using, right? Um, Do you find that it's getting a little bit more honed with recovery? It is, but to tell you the truth, I had a, I had a mental breakdown not long ago. I, Mm -hmm. uh, I went into full mania. I, I threw I threw a bag of rice and some cans of potatoes in my backpack and a t-shirt. And I, I don't know, I kind of, I blacked out and I, I came to headed out towards Alberta beach and I had no idea what I was doing or what was going on. And now that 
a lot of this mental health stuff and this trauma is coming up. It's hard to get help because when I go to doctors and try to tell them like, hey, this is what I'm dealing with because they see me as an addict and as an indigenous person, they're like, we don't want to give you this medication. You could kill yourself. And I'm like, I'd rather have this medication than almost kill myself or someone else because when I slip into mania, I'm not in control. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the, it's hard. So are they, are they denying you medication then? Um, I'm trying to get off of a mood stabilizer and it increases my appetite mm. to the point where I'll wake up at like three in the morning and I'm eating half of my fridge. So I'd like explain this to my doctor and I'm like, Hey, they, they prescribed me something else. But they keep on trying to push these other medications on me that like add weight gain or when I come off of them because I've been on so many different medications. I'm like, okay, this is what works. This is what doesn't work. This is what will help if you restrict me to 20 for the week when I'm coming off the metazapine because metaz- I've been on the metazapine for a year and that's the mood stabilizer I'm coming off of. And when you come off of it after like three days, the anxiety is so unbearable. It's like, as soon as I wake up, it's I'm sweating. I'm nervous. I'm anxious. I think the whole world is out to get me. I think everything's going to end. And it's all because of this one medication. Like I've tried to come off of it a couple times in the past six months, just like taper off. And then as soon as I get to that second day, I'm just like, Oh my God, I'm going to die. I really need help. And they said the best thing that I can do is go check myself in the hospital and stay there for a week. But I keep telling my doctor, like I'm in school, I have a job, I'm working my recovery program. I'm, I am doing Zoom big book studies twice a week. Like I'm hosting them. Like I'm okay. I just need the help to get off of this. And they, they don't even listen to me. And I've talked to my pharmacist who is awesome. Like he is probably the most helpful pharmacist I've ever had in my life because I've just, I laid all this out to him and I was just like, look, man, can you help me out? And he's been advocating for the past week. Every day he sent them faxes. Oh, good. And not helping me. They just tell me to take a little less mirtazapine. And even my, <laughs> even even the pharmacist is like, I, I don't get what's going on with them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I understand they don't want to prescribe narcotics, but why was, why was that an issue like seven or eight years ago when I tried quitting drinking and I said, hey, I need something to come off of the booze. And the only thing they could give me was Valium. And they would give me a non-narcotic, non-narcotic alternative. And the only way that I could get that covered is if I applied for it through my doctor. And he has to fax all that to Toronto. Mm. And it usually takes 40 to 50 days for all of that paperwork to process. I'm in the middle of that process right, right now to get a different medication because this is a newer medication. I don't even know the name of it, but I I have to wait almost two months just to get approval for for it. And they want me to keep taking this medication that has given me like 
people say they've gained weight because of COVID. I've gained weight because of this medication. I've put on 40 pounds. Wow. And it's because like I wake up three in the morning. I, I tried doing everything that the doctor told me. I drink water. I tried drinking Ensure. I tried just sticking like yogurt and fruit. But all that yogurt and fruit has a ton of sugar in it. Yeah. And it's like pulling my teeth with scissors. That's what it feels like. So, yeah, like, it's, it's not as easy as people think it is to be indigenous. Like, we don't get all this free stuff. And, and like I said, I can't believe it's 2020 and I'm having... I'm helping a woman with a GoFundMe for a truck and a water testing machine so she can test the, the reservations in Alberta and she wants to do it across Canada eventually, but you know, little steps. And, and I get that. It's just, why do we have to be, why does this have to be a deal right now? Like, why couldn't have we dealt with this a long time ago? Yeah. But again, No one really knows because because of these stereotypes and ideals that we get all this free stuff and we don't. And because everyone thinks we get all this free stuff, they just kind of sweep us under the rug because they're like, oh, they're Indians. They get, they get free housing and all this stuff. No. If I apply for housing like now, I might get it in 35 years on my reserve. Maybe. Most of the reservation houses that people live in, they rent. That's the, unless they like, unless their grandparents or ancestors bought that house, the majority of them rent their houses on the res. Yeah. So, hmm. who would they rent from? From the band. From the band, okay. Yeah, everything's done through the band or band office, and because each band is different, they all get different fundings, hmm. but. When you go to my reserve, like a lot of, like, I've been working in construction the past 12 years and I look at some of the work that they've done and I'm like, man, when are they going to get a professional in here to like fix this, to fix the lighting, to fix the plumbing, to fix the siding, the drywall, anything. And, and people think that we get all that for free. Yeah. That's bullshit. And, and that's that's why I want to have my protest in August because mm. I really want to break these stereotypes. Yeah. So tell us about the protest in August, man. I just saw your thing today. You sent it to me. It looks interesting. Um, I want it to be a peaceful protest. I want to let the city know that we're here and we need to be heard and recognized and and I want to share stories, but not just stories of pain, but of how we overcame things and what we need to do to change, to actually start reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Because the government has been saying, oh, we're doing all this for reconciliation, but they're not. No, they're not doing anything. They've apologized, but yeah. no one... Nothing substantial. Yeah, like, if they really want to help, if they really want to 
make reconciliation, stop funneling money into our corrupt band council systems. Because that, that, that's a big part of it is where it's getting funneled into these chiefs that are telling everyone what's really going on. I uh, The reason why I'm going to school is because I want to I want to start a, 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 a group of indigenous people that kind of monitors where all that money goes mm-hmm. and, and, and keep the people aware of what's really going on. I want to, I want to break this corruption and, and I want to give people an idea of what it really means to be an Indian. And, and people don't like that word. And, I, and I've almost gotten kicked out of four of the five treatment centers that I went to saying that word, and they were white treatment centers that told me not mm-hmm. to say Indian, but it's on my status card. It says certificate of Indian status at yeah. the top of my status card. So that's another stereotype that I wanna like break and, and help with and help kind of bring reconciliation to forward mm-hmm. um with this protest i, I, I want to talk about that i want to talk about programs that the government can start to implement not just with native people but with all people because mm-hmm. i'm not the like our people are the only ones that have experienced this trauma and i think it needs to be available to everyone because it's that's what my grandma taught me you know, through all of this chaos and all of the drugs and addiction and everything, I still hold on to what my grandma taught me. And that I just got to love the world. Hmm. After everything that she went through in residential school, she still wanted to love. And that's the other thing that I want to get across at this protest is that we got to stop with this hate, this negative bullcrap, and not just Indigenous people, but everyone. Because I have, like, since I've started speaking and going to protests, I've had white people come up to me and they're like, oh, I'm just a a privileged white piece of shit and blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm like, oh, dude, I never asked you to call yourself that. I just ask you to hear me out and hear my pain and let me know that I'm not alone and help me figure out what we can do to make a change. I don't want you to put yourself down because you didn't know what was really going on. Yeah. That kind of negativity, it'll destroy you. Yeah. It'll, it'll yeah. eat life. And, mm-hmm. and, and I've done it. That, that's why I, I became homeless. That's why I lived on the streets. That's why I did all the things I did to myself. Was because all I said to myself was, I'm just this stupid Indian and I'm not going to be good for anything and I might as well not even try. Mm-hmm. And I can see that we're taking a lot of, a lot of white people and, and it's turning them against each other mm-hmm. when Listen, when it's not needed. Yeah. I don't need you to tell me that you're a white piece of crap and whatever. <laughs> no, no, I just want you to be yeah. like, yo, I got you. I hear you. Mm-hmm. You're with you. And I, I love you, bro. And we're going to get through this. That, that's, yeah. 
that's what I want to get out. And, and those people that, that want to hear white people call themselves that stuff, I just understand that they're sick. Mm. They're still wounded and they still haven't worked through what they've worked through. Yeah. But, it's that guilt response, right? It's like that, you know, until I had a gentleman, uh, indigenous gentleman, really wonderful human. He told me, he said, Dave, he was talking, they were talking about trauma and the intergenerational trauma. And he said, Dave, it's not that we blame you but we have to be able to talk about it with you. And, I, and that hit me so profoundly, V, that it's like, yeah, you know what? If you have an opportunity to express that pain in a very real, genuine way, I just want to be able to listen, right? Because I don't know what it's like. I have no idea what, yeah, what's listen. wrong with that. And, and that's like the biggest obstacle that I've come across with a lot of a lot of white people is like because they didn't know and they, they, they think that they need to go right this wrong and, and burn down every racist home and <laughs> burn with every Confederate flag. And it's like, mm. no, not the fight we're talking about. We just want you to sit and listen. And, and honestly, if you just listen to us, just know that we're not alone. That's the best thing you could do for any person dealing with trauma. Yeah. And that's, that's what I've been fighting with. It's just people wanting to go like, I had to leave a Facebook group because like I got attacked because a bunch of white people called me like a traitor because I told them they shouldn't go burn this person's house down that had a Confederate flag in their backyard. Hmm. It's like, well, you know what? If they have that in their fucking backyard, it's not my problem. I have bigger problems to deal with than just a flag in someone's backyard. Yeah. My problem is that the government still calls me an Indian. That we still use the Indian Act. I was going to mention that. Dude. I was going to ask you how you feel about the Indian Act because I think that's the first thing that needs to be destroyed. It, it does. Mentioned. Because... In the Indian Act, it states that we're considered subhuman or mentally handicapped. And I've had a lot of people approach me and, and talk to me like I'm that way, like I'm like I'm like I'm dumb. Mm -hmm. and, and you know, they they believe that we're all illiterate and monsters, and that. We don't know anything. I I know a lot more than people give me credit, and I know the reason why they discredit me is because I'm an Indian. I, I just, you know, I gotta be honest with you. I just hate that. Eh? You're you're absolutely right. It's just so fucking awful, dude. Right? Like, it's just sorry. It just yeah. It gets me. I just feel like. How could anyone treat another human like that, right? It just breaks my heart. It breaks my heart, but it also reminds me, like, was it uh, Bob Ross, you know, like, in mm -hmm. that episode where he's painting the picture and he's talking about how we need to have the bad days to remember the good ones. And 
you know, that episode's probably one of my favorites because it was right after his wife died of cancer. And he was so sad. Yeah. And, and but it, like, I grasped onto that idea at a young age. I grasped onto that when I was four. Like, I could feel him through the TV watching that. That was, you know, that's what we did before school was watch Bob Ross. <laughs> And I'll never forget that episode in my whole life. I've thought that way as like, man, no matter how much crap I've been through, and I've been through a lot, man. Like I'll tell you some, like one of my experiences just growing up being indigenous and having parents that went through the family that went through the residential school. Uncle Floyd, he, he passed away a few years ago. But uh, he, uh, he went to residential school and he didn't know how to deal with his trauma or his issues. Uh, he caught his wife cheating on him and he tried to kill himself. He, he took a gun and he put it right here and he shot his face off. Mm. Like all of this was gone. Wow. And he, he lived through it. Wow. And he lived up in, and that was in 96. And he passed away in 2018. But having to deal with stuff like that, and, and not only that, we let him stay with us. When he got out of the hospital, we were living in Vancouver. And all he did was drink. And he mixed his booze with the, the morphine and all the other medications that they were giving him for pain. And just some of the stuff that he would say while he was blacked out drunk, he'd talk about the terrible stuff that happened in residential school. And he'd tell me, like, you kids have it so great today. You don't have it as half as bad as we did when we were in the schools. When I was your age, I was getting up at five o'clock in the, in the morning and I was getting raped by a priest and then forced to go cook breakfast. Hmm. Let's... It's not something that normal people should live with. Hmm. Nobody, no, nobody should have to go through that, man. Or before my dad murdered and my mom was with him, like my dad used to beat the crap out of my mom. And, and, and it's something that I don't want to deny that happens on the reservation. Like comes from the residential school. Mm -hmm. A lot of this abuse stems from that because a lot of us don't know how to deal with that kind of trauma yeah and then because nobody's taught how to deal with that because like the legitimately the country's saying it didn't happen right so there's people in the country in the government that try to make it seem like nothing no big deal right yeah and it, it sucks because a lot of people think that way and since I've started speaking, I've had people like, I've had people call me a liar. Mm. Like, That's fucking awful, man. Cause obviously why would you make that shit up? Uh, yeah, I don't get that. And that's why I'm like, did, did you just like. Maybe they hit their head. Maybe they hit their head or something. Yeah. And, and, and not just they've, They've turned a lot of my people against me because I'm opening up 
and I'm talking about all this stuff mm-hmm. and not just me, all the other activists that are part of the groups that we don't get a whole lot of support from our people. Mm-hmm. It sucks because we're alone. Like I'm, I'm grateful for what I have and I have all the friends and, and support, but but the ones that mean the most to me that aren't there, that's the pain that, that people don't see. Yeah. You know, uncles and aunts that tell us that we're traitors and that we're, that we're doing wrong because we're speaking out because they were taught so long ago not to say anything that they think what we're doing is wrong. Yeah, because there was their resistance that they might have had was beaten out of them, was raped out of them, was taken from them. The ability to fight, right? Yeah, and, and not just them, but they taught that to their kids. So yeah. I have natives that are younger than me that are calling me a traitor and, and mm. calling me all this stuff. And it's like, no, bro, I'm just trying to help. Like, I'm just trying to change the way that he's us because. You know, being an indigenous male is is harder. Like being out here on my own, everywhere I've worked, everywhere, every restaurant, every construction site, every job that I've had, I've had coworkers come up to me and openly admit that they were afraid to talk to me because I'm indigenous. Really? Yeah. Wow. Nice. I mean, I'm glad they were honest with you, but yeah, it is it, cool because they always like come up and they're like, "Hey, man, I just wanted to apologize." You know, I just kind of had a judgment that you were going to be like this thug mm. or, or savage, and and most of the time, I just kind of slough it off, like it's cool. But then when I come home, I think like, man, I don't want people to be afraid of me. Yeah, that shit hurts. It does. Especially because you seem like a guy with a lot of love, man. You you seem just because you're you're raising your voice and you're angry, that doesn't mean you're not full of love. Because I I think it's coming from a place of love. I think really that's what I see when I when I read your posts and I listen to you, especially now. I mean, I can sense that's where it's coming from. But going against the grain is always going to get you an outsider, right? Like so. And, and that's kind of like you and I were kind of chatting a little bit about it on the messenger, right? Because, I mean, it, it's no real secret that somebody called me a race trader, like to my face, because I refuse to um, only give one side of things, right? Like I refuse to stay neutral um, because this is not something I can be neutral about. There's no way. Like this is, this is human rights, the conditions of humans, in, in this country, living um, under a rule of apartheid just is absolutely absurd to me that we're still here. This just boggles my mind. Yeah. And what bothers me the most is how people have just kind of been ignoring it mm-hmm. over the past. 30 years how I mean like I get it I get how the system whitewashed everything and tried to sweep everything under the rug but why 
Why do we keep stepping over our homeless? Why do we keep ignoring our murdered and missing indigenous women? The majority of them were sex workers and, and a lot of them, I go talk to them because I care about them. I go offer them smokes and, and just someone to talk to you. And I ask them about what it's like. And they're not afraid to talk to me because I am what I am. And I go down and I present myself the way that I do. I've talked to three Aboriginal women in Edmonton that have been captured and tortured for days. And they were working the streets here. And they're afraid to go to the cops because the cops won't do anything. One, because they're prostitutes. Two, because they're indigenous. And we're just sweeping these, these women under the rug. And in my culture, the way my grandma raised me, what she taught me was that women give life. They give birth. They have this power. They are stronger than I will ever be. Yeah, I've been through a lot of shit, but I still give women that credit that they give life, that, the, that they have a, a, an ability that I will never have. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, you know, it takes two to tangle, but they, they hold that life for, yeah. for months. And the connection that they have, yeah. it's, it's what we They're need. They're just a lot stronger than we are, that's all. <laughs> yeah, well, in, in like our, in my culture, we, we turn to our women for advice. Mm -hmm. Because they have that knowledge and, and the experience of giving life and, and they need to protect life. Yeah. And then that's what a lot of it was about, was just finding ways of protecting life and giving it and, and mm -hmm. working together as a community. We work together as a community, but my grandma taught me that I need to rely on the women in my life and I have. I was raised by a lot of women and, and they, that's how our communities work. Mm -hmm. Like that's, you know, my grandpa talked, he, he took us out hunting, fishing, we did all that stuff, but the women did the most of the work. Yeah. They, they made sure we school, fed, they took care of everyone during gatherings, powwows, funerals. Men, we were just kind of there to like make sure we got the, the meat and everything else taken care of, but women did most of the work and I watched the women in my family do most of the work. So I have that respect for them. And it sucks because I've had some North American women take advantage of that because I believe so strongly in that. Yeah. Um, But the way that this North American society views women, it's, it disgusts me mm. because they have this glass ceiling or whatever it is. And, and it's why I work harder with women. It's why I work harder when 
like for example one of the girls that i was training with at the diner i was working out a few months ago like and like i, I didn't even worry about her being indigenous as soon as she was like yeah i'm gonna be a line cook i'm gonna be a chef and all this stuff i was like man i want you to be the best freaking line cook ever i want you to I want you to rock everyone's world and I want to help you become that because that's what my grandma taught me is that I need to help women do that kind of stuff. I need to motivate them because they gave me life and the opportunity to do all this stuff. I need to show them that much respect. And the way that I see our society treats our women is terrible. I have a... Sorry, man. I heard you mentioned the murdered and missing Indigenous women, um, and I kind of wanted to just pick your brain a little bit about that. What? How do you think that the missing and murdered Indigenous women? How do you think that can continue to happen um, unabated without some sort of like obviously nationwide? Um, there's got to be some people out there literally doing this regularly right like there's so many missing and murdered indigenous women that there's absolutely there's only one way to account for it there are literally people targeting them right so we would call that a serial killer now because they don't have a suspect or anything like that they won't say that but is it possible now this is something that crossed my mind people call me paranoid sometimes so don't hesitate to say i'm paranoid if you think so but i really do believe that the um rcmp either knows or is somehow in part and party potentially to this missing and murdered indigenous women. I feel like there, I can't get around it. Every time there's another um, stab at the RCMP, it brings it right back to the forefront. Because how, how can this go on for so long with no results? There's got to be something to it. Well, it well, if you look at the RCMP, they're originally created to keep us on the reserve mm -hmm. and manage us. And when you look at a lot of these small town, small towns in Canada, the amount of money that RCMP and police forces get to deal with the indigenous communities, I'm talking millions. Mm -hmm millions of dollars just to deal with the indigenous communities yeah and and i think a lot of them are just burnt out a lot of cops are like we've been trying and we just we don't know what else to do you're giving us all this money but they don't have the actual mental health resources at hand when they go out to the reservations for these calls and and a lot of them, like I said, they go missing because they are sex. Sorry, sex because they are targeted. with? Sex workers are targeted. And because RCMP, the police, any, any kind of, most people think sex workers aren't people. Mm -hmm. So that's why well, that's, it's, a, that's a shitty truth right there, Matt. Yeah, and that's why a lot of this has been, that's why it's been going on for so long. They say that or there was only like 15 people that, or 15 Indigenous women that they found on Picton's pig farm, but I did a little more research and it was 22. Yeah. 
22 of the 35, yes, yeah, 22 of the 35 victims that were found, the ones that were found, yeah, 22 out of 35, and they were all prostitutes. Mm-hmm. They were all sex workers in the sex trade, and and they got lucky. The government, right? Like somebody didn't somebody get away, and that's how they found him in the first place. Yeah, but there are a lot of other bodies that they haven't found. Yeah, that's my point. Like, there's so many. Um, there are a lot. There. I can think of four women from my band alone that have been missing since <laughs> since 1999. Really? Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I know there's so many, right? Like, I, that's what makes me think there's got to be, and I, I don't want to come across like a conspiracy theorist, of course, but there's something going on. Because how, how are we missing this? If the RCMP is the great law enforcement agency they claim to be, how are they missing? Um, well, they're obviously doing it on purpose is what I'm thinking, because I don't believe they're stupid. Not at all. I believe this is calculated to be, to some extent. It has to be. My conspiracy is that they, they get paid not to care. Mm. That's how it that seems, the, for sure. Like, and, and being in the lifestyle that I've been in, and I watch, like, I've seen some crooked RCUP officers. Mm-hmm. And they get paid to sweep it. They get paid to ignore it. And that's it. Like people think that all this money that's getting funneled into the RCMP is to help them, but really they're just paying us, paying them to ignore us. Mm-hmm. They they and they don't give the RCMP the right tools or the right teachings. It's just keep those Indians quiet. Mm-hmm. Let us do our thing. Um, which is probably an extension of the Indian Act, right? Like it's probably the RCMP are like the sharp end of the sword of the Indian Act, I think. That, yeah, that, that's the truth. It it sure seems like it, man. Social workers dealing with cops. Any sort of government dealing with us, they're kind of everything roots back to the Indian Act. It was mm-hmm. some law to do with us and preventing us from doing something or or privileging us into something, it's because of the Indian Act. Yeah. And and I, I think a lot of people, man, you could tell me what you think of this, but I, I thought about this well, I thought about this a while for a while. Um, every time the the government or whatever gives money to uh, to the reserves. All it does is create enemies out of the rest of the country, right? So our governments have this nasty habit of just throwing money at fucking problems anyway. So in this case, though, the money that they're giving to reserves, that the, you mentioned some, some chiefs who might have been unsavory, um, didn't do, manage the money well. But think about it if there was no Indian Act and they didn't give special interest, like they didn't give money away 
Instead, they built infrastructure, right? Instead of giving money and getting the rest of the country mad, right? Because I mean, most of the people who think that indigenous people in Canada get things for free, get a whole bunch of stuff for free, they have no idea that they don't have clean drinking water. They have no idea. I can almost assure you of it. Except for maybe in the last couple of years when this has become more and more in the news, right? Um, I can guarantee that they weren't thinking that Standing Rock was about water, right? What what happens is, is that, and you're like your grandfather, to be to be deemed a terrorist, man, by, and I'm assuming it was CSIS that did that, which is an extension of RCMP. So again, it's like, how can we grind out the wonderful culture of all the indigenous people in North America and still save some face, right? That's what I see them trying to do. They're basically trying to save face by giving money, which they know will turn a good portion of the country against the indigenous population, right? I mean, how could it not? If you're a, if you're a reasonably ignorant human and all you hear is the government gave this band so many, so many millions, right? You're not able to understand that really, that's why they did it. They almost gave the money so that they could get the support of the non-Indigenous people, right? And say, oh, those Indigenous people, they're always mad, right? But yeah. very, right, very seldom is it they're, they're mad because they don't have clean water, because the Indian Act dehumanizes them. Like these are the, re these are to me, that's the, the underlying, not to mention the residential school uh, trauma and the, the um, down in the States, it was the boarding schools, right? And, um, and all of the trauma surrounding it. It's not just the residential schools, mm -hmm. like the 60s group. Um, mm -hmm. Something that my mom shared with me that is still like really hard for me to wrap my head around was that in between, you know, school and whatever, instead of her going home for holidays, like summer, Christmas, whatever, my mom was in foster care. My mom was forced to work on a farm and she was raped daily by her foster dad who would make her sleep in the basement in an unfinished basement on dirt with the dogs and a potato sack and 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 and, and people think that this assimilation is is, is, is helping us when it, it's killing our our culture our heritage and demeaning us yeah i've uh i've got a like well, she was a really good friend of mine she was part of one of the youngest members of the 60s group. She's from Saskatchewan. And she told me of the Christian family that adopted her and how her foster mom would try to wash the brown out of her skin when she was a kid. Oh, Jesus, man. And, yeah. you know, she would force her to go to church and try to assimilate her. But the whole time that she was doing that, she was just demeaning her by putting her down and calling her Indian and worthless and all this other stuff. And it's like, or these people didn't help these like, and I'm not saying that these Christians didn't help their people because I, I. Well, most of them didn't help. That's okay, man. Most of them were part of the problem. And, and it's because that they thought that they were saving us, but really they were just killing us. Yeah. Killing us on the inside. Well, and the outside, right? That's, that's like, what it was. Yeah. It was a 
there's no other way of putting it. Yeah. And, and that not that like it wasn't my mom. She wasn't the only one that went through that. There are so many yeah. other people that went through it that just don't want to talk about it. And then thousands of people, millions probably. Yeah, and, and we our communities just try and sweep it under the rug and forget that it happened. And then we get so caught up in addiction and and abuse and neglect that we neglect our whole community and we're all pretty freaking broken. Like if you go to if you go into my reserve in the nineties, I went to an average of one funeral a year for two years. And that was because my people were drinking themselves to death, drunk driving accidents, suicide, drug overdoses. Um, a couple of them killed each other because they were intoxicated or on drugs. And a lot of them were children that survived the schools. And, and when you go back to the, the government giving us all this money and turning society against us, the government is giving us money because they know we'll kill ourselves. That's the truth. They're not making any sort of repentance. They know that if they give broken people a large amount of money, a lot of us are going to die. And a lot of us that got residential school money or 60 scoop money have died. Like 40% of the people on my reserve that got money from the residential schools, either drank themselves to death, died in a drunk driving accident, or overdosed on drugs. Oh, like, like, like the, what the government should do to make some sort of reconciliation, yeah, give us this money, but instead of giving us this money, put it in a trust fund. Show us how to use it. But before you give us this money and trust fund, create mental health programs mm -hmm. that will help deal with the trauma so when we get out of those mental health programs, we know what to do with that money. Give us resources that teach us how to manage money. Yeah. Because when you go to these reserves, you, 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 you here in Alberta, the, some of the reserves that have oil money, none of them are taught how to deal with it. None of them are told like, hey, you should go invest this money. Maybe you should go buy stuff in this. Maybe you should put in money towards a, a, a towards your retirement or a home. And they've been doing that for generations. Yeah. And people think that like, oh, oh you Indians should just like be smarter with your money. And it's like, well, we don't know how. <laughs> like, nobody's told me about all this stuff. I had to go yeah. to a bunch of different treatment centers and a bunch of other places to learn about this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Nobody on my reserve knew how to manage a bank account or pay mm -hmm. for a credit card or any of that stuff. It was... and, and it's not like those of us that do that get free money get a whole lot. My Wait, well, let's let's make sure we don't call it free money because it is not free yeah, money. it's not free money it's just there's no fucking chance it's free because every every penny is deserved more than that is okay deserved. let's see let's sorry man i just didn't give us one pretty much what they're doing is they're giving us a gun and they're yeah. saying here you go take this and do what you want with it mm. because that's what they're doing. They're just like, here's a loaded gun. Yeah. 
have that. You don't know what which, else. Which right? absolutely makes me feel like it's on purpose, right? Like that it's, they give the money specifically to, to build up that resentment that might be existing in the non-Indigenous people, as well as with some Indigenous people too, I'm sure. Yeah. And, and the money that some of us do get, they might add. She gets $275 to live off of a month in BC, in British Columbia. So you got to remember, British Columbia has provincial tax and government tax. So if she's not shopping for stuff on the reserve, the amount of tax that she's paying on everything, she's not getting enough to survive. And a lot of Indigenous people on reserves in Canada are like that. They think that we're getting all this free money when we barely get enough to get by. And then those of us that figure out that we need to work or hustle or do whatever to get by, you know, they think that we're getting all this for free. And I've had people, I've had Easterners approach me (laughs) and tell me that they thought that, you know, all natives were the same because they saw like these Eastern tribes, they're getting taken care of for the most part. There's some tribes out there that I don't agree with, but for the most part, they were taken care of. Or they got on the hustle. Like you, you see these res smokes, the bag smokes, you know. You think our people really want to do that? Do you think we really want to be known for selling cheap smokes? No. It sucks being known for that, you know. I don't want to be known for cheap cigarettes. That's, that's gross. Like, and... And he told me that when he came out here, he thought that that's what all Indians did and, and that's how we got by. And I was like, no, man, those guys are lucky that they get that hustle. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. It's a hustle. It's not, it's not something that we want to go out and do about because tobacco is sacred to us. Yeah. For me to go out and sell tobacco like that is disrespectful to my culture. Mm-hmm. We do what we got to do to survive. And I had to explain it on that. I was like, yo, man, those, those natives that have that, that stuff, like, I'm pretty sure, like, some of them don't sleep that great at night because they're like, man, I am the cheap smoke guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and that might be absolutely, like, I could see how that would be a, a tough handle to have, man. You know? Nobody wants that. Man, it's like... That's probably one of the first questions that like some of my past coworkers have asked me, hey, man, can you get cheap smokes? Mm. And it's like, maybe, I don't know. Mm. Do we all look like we sell smokes and, and, and whatever else you think that we sell? And do you think that I can tell you about your dreams and mm. talk to animals? Because I've had people tell me like they thought that I could talk to animals and, and <laughs> really? <laughs> Yeah, they, they thought that I, I was like a weatherman. Like I've had <laughs> past coworkers like, hey man, you think it's going to rain today? Why do you have to ask me that every day? Like, why do you ask anyone else? Yeah. And eventually you came out and like, you know, man, I hate this kind of stereotype, but you, you Indians are so mm-hmm. connected with the earth. And I'm like, well, I, I can get behind that one, you know, that, that's okay. Yeah. 
but it still sucks because like well you're not like psychic well I mean, people have all these like wrong ideas of us mm. Well, that's why I'm glad that you're out there being vocal, man, and talking about this stuff. It's important, D. Like, it's important. I'm doing it. I'm doing it for the women in my family. Mm. For my grandma. For my Auntie Charlotte. For my mom. My Granny Josephine. My Auntie Betty. My Auntie Spick my auntie slug, all the women that were in residential that taught me how to love. That's why I do it. Mm-hmm. Because they taught me how to love and I want to teach everyone else the same thing. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I have my days where I lose my, I lose my shit and I freak out on people in comments on Facebook or I freak out. <laughs> I, freak, I, I freaked out on a rock the other day. It, was, it wasn't even <laughs> like that stupid meme, you know, stupid fucking rock. Like it was just there and I, I had to go run and kick it. And I was like, ah, you know, I'm human. And, and I yeah, have those. And, and that's, that's the other hard part about doing this because a lot of people see me come up and they see me present myself and, and I'm a pretty peaceful dude. But I'm still human. And and mm-hmm. when I get pushed to certain limits, yeah, I'm going to fucking freak out. I'm going to say stuff that I don't mean. Because I'm relearning how to deal with things. I'm, I'm three years in recovery almost. And, and Crap, <laughs> I'm finally learning to... <laughs> I'm finally learning to wipe my own ass and lift up the toilet seat, if you know what I'm saying. It's not like <laughs> the actual, you know, but it's, I'm learning how to be an adult again yep. and deal with mm-hmm. life on life's terms. And there are a lot of people out there in recovery that had that kind of stuff to begin with. Yeah. And you're having to learn a whole bunch. Yeah, and people think that, you know, us as Indigenous people, when we're coming out of all that, that we're like, yeah, we're stronger and we're, we're more resilient, but we're pretty freaking sensitive. Mm-hmm. I am a sensitive dude. Yeah. Like, I, I can't even tell you which commercial it was the other day, but it was like this stupid commercial with kittens. And for some reason, I'm just sitting here like, oh, God, kitties. <laughs> Yeah, I just love them so much, and I'm just like, "Why?" Because <laughs> I love them so much. That's just like so much. <laughs> we're sensitive. Yeah, we're sensitive people, and we're proud. When, when you can't, yeah, of course you're sensitive, man, and of course you're proud. You have every reason to be proud, right? Like, and every reason to be sensitive because, first of all, you've survived where the colonial colonialists when they came here didn't think you would, right? Like they were flat out banking on eliminating complete genocide. I have no doubt in my mind that if they could have accomplished complete genocide, they would have, right? 100%. There's nothing in the history that tells me otherwise, right? Um, I, I don't care how many sensitive white people try to tell me otherwise. The reality is the reality. There's, if there was no stop, they would have completed it. They would have completed genocide. If, if times hadn't changed, people stopped getting, being okay with that stuff, they would have finished the job. That's my impre- impression. 
because the last the last residential school was closed in what 1998 was it or 89 was that yeah, 96 that was, yeah 1996 yeah and i was i was nine years old in 96 wow. so yeah. for the last residential school in canada to be closed in 96 that's saying a lot right it is yeah. i had no idea man that it was that recent the one that my family went through was closed in 1980. 1980 they demolished it because they didn't want to remember it like it was on it was on the reservation that I grew up on, Sugarcane. They, they changed the name now. It was like Williams Lake First Indian Band or something like mm -hmm. that. It's always going to be Sugarcane, and Sugarcane's always going to have that that memory. Mm -hmm. And it's scary. Well, I'm sure glad they demolished it, man. I'm not because no, no, because we can't. All we have is pictures of this mm. atrocious place. Well, I guess and you could have learned, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not about me learning. It's about the rest of the country learning. It's, it's yeah. the way the government swept everything under the rug. And was like, we're just going to like demolish all this stuff here. We're going to give you guys all this money and let you fix your houses and all this other stuff. Good luck. And I got you. We're just going to forget about this and forget yeah. it happened. And that's the shitty thing is that's what they want. Yeah. And, and that's what a lot of people want, but that's why I'm, again, that's why I'm doing the protest and speaking out and, and giving people an idea and breaking stereotypes because that's, that's our biggest issue and not just with white people, but throughout, throughout our community. Um, <clears throat> some of my fellow protesters, they're from Muskwichu's, formerly known Hobima. I'm gonna always call it Hobima, but anyway, mm. he uh, he lives out there, and his community is outcast him because he's talking about the stuff that happens on the res and what it's like, and our poverty and and the struggles that we face and the abuse because he's opening up about that, he's a target. He's a target from our people. And I wanna break those barriers. I wanna break those barriers between my people because like, man, like Pac said, we need to make changes. We need to change the way we think. We need to change the way we act. We need to change the way we love each other because we're not loving each other in our communities. We're just misplacing hate. It's yeah. all hate. Yeah, you said it so well, man, when you're talking about your how your mom's taught you to love, right? Like some people didn't have that. They didn't have anybody like showing them. And I mean, you could see easily how that would just be so destructive, right? The that it would turn into hate so easily, you know? Um, I don't, and I don't blame, I don't blame anyone for that because it's, it's a natural repercussion of, of, how, of how indigenous people have been treated. It's a natural repercussion to be angry. Like, and frankly, um, 
until until everyone can be open and we can heal together, it's going to be really hard to get rid of that anger and that hate from both sides, right? From from all sides. And that's something that like I'm glad that you mentioned that because not all natives have what I have. Mm-hmm. You know, not all of them have that family aspect that I have, even though like we went through our traumas, we still had each other. And, you know, talking to other indigenous people that were, that tell me like, man, you know, we had the, the drunken mom, aunts and uncles and whatever, but we didn't have the kind of love that you had. Like, Mm -hmm. I see that a lot on the reservations out here. It's just they're so broken and there's so much abuse. So like, yeah, I get why some of them lash out at me and some of them don't like me because they're jealous. Well, and, and maybe they're just not at that same place in healing that you're at, right? Where you're, you're wanting to turn this into love because you know that's the answer, right? Like, I mean... Love, yeah. love is the only thing that can beat hate, right? Well, yeah, and that's, I think that's just what builds the animosity between different natives is that those of us that have had it really rough that don't have the stuff that other people have, we're just like, screw you. <laughs> yeah. I don't want anything to do with you. Mm-hmm. Um. Because it must be so hard to see that, right? Yeah. When when the person hasn't had that. Or I've had them like latch on to me and just mm-hmm. try and like get that from me. And it's like, dude, I, I, I can do the best I can to love you that way. But a lot of them are so wounded when I even come and try and give them any kind of love. They, they just explode and they're like mm-hmm. oh my god this is too much i don't know what's going on and i've done the same thing and yeah we're all so broken um this girl that i was seeing she's indigenous she uh she told me <clears throat> that she'd never Her family didn't love her like mine. And just seeing that in other reservations and other indigenous people out here, it just really puts the nail in the coffin for like the way we're suffering from residential schools and uh, just the what happened to our, our society and culture. Yeah. We can't love each other the way that we used to. We can't believe the way that we used to. And it sucks because we're all so alone. I, even though like we're talking, I still feel alone. Even though I go to these protests and I go to meetings, when I'm in the meeting, I still feel alone. I still feel like I don't belong. 
and I still feel like I don't belong to my people. I've found some belonging in the recovery community, but even then, like I've talked to other indigenous people in the rooms and and they all express the same feeling. Like, you know, it doesn't matter how many meetings we go to, how many churches we go to, and how many people say that we love men. We still don't feel that love because we don't have that love for ourselves because that's what the schools took from us. Like I, I, I still struggle with being angry towards my people when I see them out on the streets and drunk and high and doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing. I get caught up in that self-hate. But I gotta remember we're all, all human and we're all people. Yeah. It's it's quite the journey. No doubt, man. No no easy turns, eh? Like none. No, but if I keep pushing through, things will change. Agreed. That's that's the biggest reason why I want to have this protest. That's why I want to get our voices heard. Because mm-hmm. I've had so many people approach me and they're like, we didn't know about residential schools and we lived like, because you can go on uh, Google and you can find where all the residential schools were in Canada. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these people are like, yeah, man, we, we just thought you guys were all like savages. <laughs> Just plain and simple, they're like, we thought you were guys were like just some really hard people, but they didn't understand how hard up we'd been done by. And, and it's a relief when they come and tell me that they've listened. It's been pretty hard though, because as soon as I'm done speaking at a protest, I want to like beeline it <laughs> through like out of there, but I have all up and trying to hug me when I just want to be like, I let out way too much mental and emotional stuff. You guys need to stay away, but then I can't be all like going crazy in front of people. I need to keep my composure and like, okay, I'm back. Mm-hmm. Breathing, we're hugging people, everything's good, but it's scary, dude. Yeah, I bet it is, man. Like, hey, I we're uh, running out of time here. The I wish we had all night for you, man. I, I, uh, I really, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for coming on here and being so open. Um, you're, you're the next the the protest. You're trying. What are you trying to organize for August protest? Yeah, it's a peaceful protest. Um, it's to give the country and the city an idea of what they can do to start actually reconciling for mm-hmm. what the what has happened you know we, we want to give the community and the country an idea of programs that they can create and and i want to break stereotypes so people will stop thinking we get all this free stuff and, and stop yeah. being afraid of us you know because we're, we're human and, and we just want to be loved and cared for like the next person mm-hmm. And, Do you and, have a uh, date yet, or? Um, 
Yeah, Saturday the fifteenth uh, of August. Yeah. Okay. And from what time till when and where? Um, it's going to be at Edmonton at the legislature. Right. At the now, which? Uh, at the Edmonton Edmonton legislature. Okay. Um. Right now, I've got me and four other speakers. We're trying to get uh, Chubby Cree in. I don't know if you've heard Chubby Cree. I haven't. No. He back during the pipeline protests and uh, during Wet'suwet'en a couple months yeah. ago, he was on the news and he had sung. Uh, I can't remember the name of the song, but he's like a ten-year-old kid who's got like an amazing, powerful voice. Wow. And he's 10 years old. This kid can sing. And we're trying to get him and some other people to join. Um, right now, it's all kind of in the works, but the people that I have speaking are just going to address all this, the stuff that I was talking about. And um, we're looking for Indigenous members of the LGBTQ committee our community um, so they can talk about just their experiences and things that we can do as a community together to make change. Because okay. awesome. that, that's what this is all about is making change. Okay. And, and not, so when we, sorry, go ahead, man. I'm sorry. I was going to say not just for indigenous people, but for all people. Because mm -hmm. we care about everyone. As hard I definitely as feel that from you, man. I do. I feel that you do care about everybody. You know that you're for all people. And I, I really appreciate that about your, the way you talk and how you present it. Um, v, again, thank you so much, man. I, I, could, I cannot repay you. Um, if, I, if I think of a way, I will. But I'm, I, <laughs> as of right now, I, I just can't, I can't repay you, man. I, I really appreciate you, man, for doing this. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for having right me. Dude, it was, it was our pleasure, honestly. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Voices in Recovery podcast. Please stay tuned every Wednesday as we air another episode. Thank you for your time. And please, if you're in trouble, reach out. If you need to contact us at www.freedomspathrecoverysociety.ca or you can look for us on Facebook under Freedoms Path Recovery Society. Thank you again for tuning in. Please stay tuned for upcoming groups, activities, and podcasts.